Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 484. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Glorious day today and glorious show. Excellent show, to be quite honest. I'll tell you what's coming up. First up is the main fiction, and it is Cupid's Compass by Lee Cypress. Then we have Amy H. Sturgis with a looking back at genre history. And this is part two of Louis Macaster Bujol's little fan fiction exploration, for one for a better description. So that's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So jumping straight into the main fiction, it is Cupid's Compass, which was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Lee Cypress wrote her first short story in which the narrator was an ice cream cone at the age of six and sold her first piece of fiction while in high school. She has degrees in biology, journalism and law and has travelled to Iceland, Israel, Jordan and Costa Rica, amongst other places. She now lives with a family in Silver Spring, Maryland. She is the author of four fantasy novels published by Harper Collins, Miss Wood, Night Spell, Death Sworn and Death Mask. Lee has also published short stories in Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine, Asimov Science Fiction and Sword and Saurus Sorceress, should I say, amongst other places. Her story, Nanny's Dear, was nominated for a Nebula Award in 2012. And you can find more of her at leesypes.com. This story is narrated by Fran Karras. Fran Karras is whatever she decides when she wakes up in the morning. She's also been known to be a performance artist and poet, voice actor and professional dabbler in other arts that express. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Cupid's Compass by Leah Sipis. Narrated by Fran Karras. When Julie and Steve first decided to fall in love, they knew very little about each other. It was Julie's sister's idea. Mindy had met Steve at a legal conference, asked everyone she knew about him, and spent a few days checking public databases and, against firm policy, some non-public ones, before she broached the idea to Julie. "'Aw, come on,' Julie said. "'I'm not into that kind of thing.' You're thirty-five, Mindy said. You said you would think about it when you were thirty-five. So she had. But five years ago, thirty-five had felt very far away. It still did, actually. Julie scowled. Okay, but there's no way I'm falling in love with a lawyer. 
That's the whole point. You can fall in love with whoever you want. Someone stable. Someone you could have a real future with. Not an out-of-work musician or a small-time drug dealer or a man incapable of commitment. Or one who's already married or spends two hours a week in therapy talking about how much he distrusts women. It was hard to tell if she was talking about Julie's five most recent boyfriends or just the last one. Either way, she had a point. Julie spent a moment contemplating her other options. As she saw it, she had two. She could aim for strings of disappointing dates punctuated by the occasional devastating heartbreak. Or she could give up, adopt some cats, become addicted to reality shows, and drown her loneliness with ambition. All right, she said. Do you have a picture? The picture her sister showed her was obviously touched up, but Julie pretended not to notice. Part of the point of Cupid's compass was that once she got her brain zapped, looks wouldn't matter. We discourage the use of the word zapped, Larissa Monfried, founder of the field of romantic neuroscience and CEO of Cupid's Compass, explained earnestly. She sat behind a business-like but tasteful wooden desk, framed by pastel-colored wallpaper, her voice lilting to the tune of the soft rock playing in the background. What we actually do is gently stimulate certain regions of the brain with our patented patterns of electromagnetic energy. It's a carefully controlled process. Julie, who had already studied the pamphlets in the waiting room, smiled politely. Now that we have pinpointed the neural basis of romantic love, we can safely and effectively induce a long-lasting emotional attachment that will lead to a lifetime of happiness. Larissa placed both her elbows on the desk and leaned forward. But before we begin, I want to make sure you understand the payment plan. I do, said Julie, who didn't. Mindy was actually paying for the procedure as a birthday present, but she was embarrassed to tell Larissa that. We are trying to get it covered by insurance. Statistically, married people tend to live longer and experience fewer health problems, so we have a good case. Larissa sighed and propped her chin up with one hand. Unfortunately, we're constantly blocked by the online dating lobby. Being single isn't a disease, Julie snapped, against her better judgment. Mindy had driven her to Cupid's Compass, and that half-hour ride had exhausted her tolerance for being pitied. It's this unhealthy obsession with another person that's a disease, and the fact that our society worships that disease is just... Uh... At that point, her eloquence failed her. Another disease. Larissa folded her hands together on her desk. If you don't mind being alone, why are you here? Do you really think you won't be happier once you're in a good, loving relationship? I'll be happier, Julie said, but I'm... Mm, adequately happy now. Larissa smiled, as if she had scored a point. Her voice switched back to its bright and cheerful setting. Exactly! So you must be thrilled to have access to technology that can increase your happiness. Julie shifted in her chair, feeling vaguely outmaneuvered. I don't know if I would use the word thrilled, 
but I'm willing to give it a try. How does it work? Larissa cleared her throat. You and your future soulmate will be fitted with helmets that produce a rotating magnetic field over the temporal lobes of your brains. When you meet each other, our techs will turn the helmets on, and a particular frequency and pattern of the field will be generated that will induce deep feelings of attraction, caring, and a sense that you are incomplete without each other. It usually takes only a few minutes, and studies have shown no negative side effects except for passing feelings of nausea and a few days of insomnia. Please keep in mind that the procedure is reversible, but the reversal is far more complicated and expensive than the initial treatment, which, Julie thought, explained the expensive desk. It will also work best if the two of you have never met before, so we don't have any pre-existing brain patterns to overcome. We haven't, Julie said. My sister is the only one who's talked to him. But honestly, I already have the impression that he's not my type. Oh, my dear, Larissa said with a chuckle. That's usually the case. The meeting was set for four o'clock that Thursday, but Steve had to cancel because of an emergency deposition. He rescheduled the second meeting, too. By the time they did meet, Julie was quite concerned about her pre-existing brain patterns, but Larissa assured her it would be okay. Our treatments are 90% effective, she said, patting Julie's shoulder. Human beings are genetically predisposed to feel love, because it helps create stability and further our survival as a species. Julie thought of her own love life, which, even at its best, could never have been described as stable. Apparently evolution hadn't taken the extra step of predisposing human beings to exercise good judgment in their love lives. But, of course, that was why she was here. Sure enough, when Julie and Steve met in Cupid's Compass's offices in a room cleverly designed to look like a restaurant, the conical helmets attached to each of their heads aimed their electromagnetic pulses precisely. Julie had only a brief, a very brief moment, to notice how the helmet straps emphasized Steve's lack of chin. And then it was done. They got married six months later, and Julie publicly thanked both Mindy and Larissa at the wedding. For so long, she said, smiling tearfully at Steve, I was trapped by the myth of romantic love. I could never have pulled out of that trap by myself. I owe my happiness to you. Between smiles and sobs, Larissa handed out business cards. All went well for a year of wedded bliss that not even their discovered discrepancies could shake. Steve was a vegan who never ate saturated fat. Julie wasn't sure how her sister had missed that, or whether she had. They decided to have a child. For the next nine months, their love withstood the test of bloating, flatulence, vomit, heartburn, and Julie's inability to be anywhere near tofu. They sent Larissa an expensive silver bowl for Christmas. Then their baby was born, a squalling, wrinkled girl they named Anna. And as they were packing up to go home from the hospital, Steve said, How soon can we take her to Cupid's Compass? What? Julie said. Why? 
He looked at her the same way he had when she'd first breastfed Anna in front of his parents. To make sure we love her. Larissa told me the treatments can be modified to stimulate parental love. Of course I love her, Julie said, which wasn't entirely true. For most of the first day, she had stared at the tiny creature curled up in the bassinet and felt like it had nothing to do with her. But it was now the end of the second day, and she could barely remember the first day. Don't you? No, Steve said. She's your daughter. I know that intellectually. I just don't feel it. Yet, Julie said, suddenly recalling this section from one of the twenty baby books she'd read in the bathroom during pregnancy. It can take a while. That's normal. Just wait until she smiles at you for the first time. That doesn't happen until six weeks at least. Steve had also read a few baby books. We could probably get an appointment at Cupid's Compass in less than one week. Julie couldn't understand why it bothered her when Steve became a model father, grinning as he pushed the stroller around, beaming with pride when Anna drooled, even volunteering for the 4 a.m. feed. She attributed her negativity to post childbirth hormones, but that didn't change the effect. Finally, she called Larissa. Is something wrong? Larissa's voice had grown a bit more harried over the past two years. Cupid's compass had become extremely popular, but it still had that soft, reassuring, you can tell me anything cadence. No, not really. It's just, well, things have been different since Anna was born. We're both so tired and preoccupied, and we don't have as much time for each other. I feel kind of like you're less in love. On Larissa's tongue, it sounded soothing. Darling, that's very natural and common. And we do offer booster treatments that reinforce the brain region's activation at very reasonable prices. You can even pay in advance for four and get the fifth free. Oh, I don't think I'll need more than actually, if you combine your account with Steve's, I think you're due for a free one soon. Julie? Sorry, Julie said. I, uh, I didn't realize we could do that. I'll have to ask Steve if he thinks it's a good idea. He combined his last booster with a treatment for Anna, so he's not due for his next for another two months. And if you're going to be on the booster program, too, it makes sense to combine your accounts. Even if you think you'll only want one, most people end up choosing to have more. Yes, Julie said slowly. I think I'll probably be one of them. That night, Steve and Julie had their first knockout fight. Steve was concerned and kind, of course, Julie thought savagely. He's recently boosted. But he found it difficult to understand what Julie was so upset about. That's the whole point of Cupid's compass, he said. Our marriage isn't based on some random emotional turbulence. I choose to love you. I choose to love you every day. Bi monthly, you mean, Julie snapped. That seems to be the frequency that works best. Why does this bother you so much? She didn't know. 
But after a week of fruitless fighting and another week of silent sulking and sudden eruptions of private tears, it was time for her booster anyhow. Steve, who had gone from bewildered to hurt to angry, was so relieved that he took time off from work to drive her to Cupid's Compass's new downtown building. Larissa's new office was decorated in black and green instead of the old pastels. Cupid's Compass was marketing itself to the younger and hipper crowd now, trying to shake its reputation as the last resort for desperate older singles. But Larissa herself still looked much the same. It's so good to see you again, she said, folding her hands on her sleek metal desk. Behind her, the wall was a digital collage of happy couples, ever-shifting, all smiling. I don't handle many accounts on my own anymore, but I always think fondly of my first clients. Did you have any questions about the booster? I don't want a booster, Julie said, gripping her handbag tightly. I want a reversal. Larissa blinked. We don't offer them anymore. Our mission is to bring people together, not tear them apart. Since the threatened lawsuit, you mean. How do you... Steve heard about it. But he said the claim was based on emotional damages. There were no physical side effects. He'd also said it would have been thrown out of court, but Cupid's Compass had paid a hefty settlement to avoid that type of publicity. Larissa leaned across her desk. Julie, why would you want this? Because of Anna. It's exactly for Anna's sake that you should take the booster. He had to zap his brain to love his own child. From the way Larissa blanched, Julie knew she was shouting. She made an effort to sound more rational. He's the coldest man alive, Larissa, completely, emotionally unavailable. Exactly the sort of man who benefits most from our treatments, Larissa proclaimed. He loves you, Julie, and he loves Anna as much as you do. No, Julie said, he doesn't. He just feels like he does. Larissa gave her a look that, after a week of arguing with Steve, was very familiar to Julie. That's all love is, dear. You're wrong, Julie thought. But crushed under the weight of her own obvious irrationality, she couldn't say it. Larissa smiled gently. He would have loved her eventually, even without the electromagnetic stimulation. But isn't it easier this way? Too easy, Julie said. Loving Anna isn't easy. She's so tiny and fragile and... and overwhelming. It hurts sometimes, the way I feel about her. It never hurts with Steve. And that's a bad thing? Yes, I want my feelings to be real. Oh, Julie. Larissa sighed with such obvious disappointment that Julie felt guilty. We run into this sort of primitive thinking all the time. Romantic love is just a side effect of a certain pattern of brainwave activity. It makes no difference whether our treatment or electrical anomalies in your own brain are used to induce the hallucination we interpret as love. Clearly, Larissa was stressed. Words like hallucination were never used in Cupid's Compass's official statements. How do you know, Julie said. How do you know that the brainwaves are the cause and not just the symptom? 
that the surface feelings of love don't reflect something else that doesn't show up on your scans? Well, Larissa said, there is no evidence for any such assertion. It's not exactly the type of thing you can subject to a double-blind study. Exactly, Larissa said smugly. But it is, Julie said. That sort of thing should be discussed. I bet an essay about this would go viral. A flash of irritation marred Larissa's calming smile, and then it was gone. I won't argue with you, Julie. If you want the reversal, I can arrange it for you, but I suggest you take some time to think about it. I already have, Julie said. Three weeks later, she was back. Larissa had time for only a quick meeting, sandwiched between press conferences. Cupid's Compass's latest ad campaign, aimed at teenagers, had caused a media uproar. It didn't work, Julie said. I still love him. That's not pos- oh, oh, dear. Larissa leaned back. Julie, our previous reversals were all done within months of the initial treatment. You've lived with Steve and loved him for two years. The brain patterns may have become too deeply embedded for the reversal to work. I'm terribly sorry. I can arrange for a partial refund. No, Julie said. There was a cold heaviness in her midriff that it took her a moment to identify. She had forgotten, since that first visit to Cupid's Compass, what it felt like to be lonely. Can you figure something else out? That aspect of our research was closed down completely after the lawsuit, I'm afraid. We've devoted our resources to developing new, more innovative programs. Larissa's phone buzzed. She glanced down at it and said hurriedly, but still reassuringly, It's probably for the best. Go back to Steve. The two of you are so happy together. Julie swallowed a sharp lump in her throat. Brain patterns. That wasn't it at all. Ironically, she had what she wanted. She had fallen in love with her husband for real. And she knew it was real because it hurt. She didn't realize she had spoken out loud until Larissa, already halfway around the desk, paused and shook her head. That's part of your problem, don't you see? Deep down, you're convinced that only pain is real. Happiness can be real, too. Can it? Julie said sarcastically. Maybe you could find the brain areas that light up when people feel happy and skip the whole getting married thing altogether. A professionally blank expression slipped over Larissa's face. I'm afraid I can't comment on any current research. Julie looked at her sharply. But I can tell you that you were right the first time around. Larissa lifted her well-shaped eyebrows and smiled. You don't have to be with someone in order to be happy. Julie watched Larissa walk to the door, processing the flare with which the line had been delivered. It sounded like the focus of an ad campaign. If Larissa was already practicing her press release lines, the research and development must be pretty far along. New, more innovative programs. How close are you, she said, hearing and hating the desperation in her voice. 
Larissa hesitated in the doorway. Then she smiled slyly and flicked a switch on the wall. Instantly, the mirage of couples behind the desk vanished. In its place shimmered a dozen fractured images of different women, talking vivaciously in business meetings, relaxing on couches with wine and books, jogging along seashores, dancing at clubs. Above the images, in bold green and black letters, were the words, Artemis's Arrow. It's still in development, Larissa said with evident pride. But I think we're close to getting it right. Works for me, Julie said, almost in a whisper. Will there be a payment plan? Of course, Larissa said. She smiled over her shoulder. I can arrange for a significant discount, too, if you sign up now. I think you'll be thrilled with the results. Julie glanced at the shifting images of happy, smiling women. A flicker of distaste ran through her. But after a moment, her own lips curved up in an answering smile, a little more pained, a little less bright, than the smiles of the women on the wall. I'm willing to give it a try, she said, and twisted her wedding ring once around her finger before following Larissa from the room. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There you go. Don't forget, copyright days, Lee's. Lee, thank you so much. Lovely to have you back on Starship Sova. And Fran, I'll have some more of you, please, if you do not mind. Thank you very much. Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis with her part two of Looking Back at Genre History, Ames. Hello, friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I would like to pick back up with and conclude my discussion of Lois McMaster Bujold, one of my very favorite authors, and her relationship to fandom and fan fiction in particular. And if you recall, in the last segment, I talked about how fan fiction writing served as, and fanzine production, I also should add, served as a training ground for her work, and also how the genres that inspired her fan creativity became the genres in which she writes, and the genres that she continues to sort of blur and remix in her works. And what I'd like to do today is talk about, in particular, her notion of the unsung collaborator and how that came out of uh, fan fiction and and her experience with fan fiction, and also how uh, there is a bit of a generational divide in the way that professional authors think about fan fiction. And, and really, her position marks her as ahead of her time, if you will. In fact, let's start there, and this will also allow me to get a little bit on my soapbox <laughs> and talk about a controversy that to this day drives me nuts to think about. It's controversial issue, fan fiction is, for some authors. One of the more recent and highly publicized and ill-tempered eruptions of the question occurred in May 2010. 
Diana Gabaldon, who's known for her romance historical fantasy Outlander series, made a post entitled Fan Fiction and Moral Conundrums on her official blog on May 3rd, noting her policy against fan fiction. And in that, she said, quote, okay, my position on fanfic is pretty clear. I think it's immoral. I know it's illegal. And it makes me want to barf whenever I've inadvertently encountered some of it involving my characters, end quote. George R.R. R. Martin, most famous for his epic fantasy series, A Song of Ice and Fire, published a post in support of Gabaldon's policy called Someone is Angry on the Internet, four days later on his live journal, blaming fan fiction for, among other things, the fact that H.P. Lovecraft lived in poverty, ate poorly, and died an early death, which is, frankly, preposterous. So several popular science fiction authors, writers such as John Scalzi and Charlie Strauss, spoke out against Gabaldon's, quote, recent declaration of war on fanfic, as Strauss called it. Horror author Nick Mamatis posted heroically <laughs> a specific rebuttal to Martin in his own live journal, pointing out factual errors in Martin's understanding both of copyright and of Lovecraft's life story, arguing that Lovecraft's work survived and grew popular in large part due to his fans and their writings. Mamadis suggested that detractors of fan fiction, quote, should avoid rewriting history by trying to show Lovecraft as a negative example of the power of fanfic, when ultimately Lovecraft's reputation is what it is today, partially because of fanfic, end quote. Neither side backed down. In her blog post, Fan the Flames, science fiction and fantasy writer Catherine M. Valenti took stock of the debate, framing it in terms of age divisions. I think this is quite interesting. Quote, this argument is already over. It is a generational one. You've got a whole host of authors coming into their own who grew up with fanfic as a fact of life or even committed it themselves, who have been messing about with creative commons since forever. A whole generation who sees fanfic as not a nuisance, but a mark of success, a benchmark, end quote. I think this may be the case. There's anecdotal evidence to support this. From the likes of successful younger writers, uh, science fiction author Cory Doctorow and fantasy author Maggie Stivevader, just two. If it is, then Lois McMaster Bujold, who falls between the ages of Gabaldon and Martin, who were described by Valente as representing that certain generation of authors who, quote, will always hate and fear fanfic, end quote, really is ahead of her time. She both acknowledges her own experience with fanfiction and she encourages her fans to be creative. I think that's both impressive and important. She has flat out said to authors, feel free to write amongst yourselves. In terms of fan fiction about her own work, uh, her official and authorized website, the Bujold Nexus, includes links to fan fiction, fan art, fan music, and other fan creations on its front page. But you could argue that her greatest support to the fan community is the credibility she lends to fan activities, to transformative works, by recognizing her own background as a fan and by taking seriously the insights available from fan fiction. And here, then, we get to her theory of the unsung collaborator. 
Her experience reading fan fiction helps to inform her theory of what writers and readers do together in order to make literature. This is a theory she explains in her 1989 essay, *The Unsung Collaborator*, which has been credited with reinventing the reader response theory of literature. In this essay, *The Unsung Collaborator*, Bujold describes a book. Not as an object, but as a process, one that requires both the author's and the reader's input in order to reach completion. Writer and reader share the work, so one creates the framework of the story, and the other fills in its ellipses. Bujold likens this to the author being the architect who draws the plans for the structure, and the reader to the contractor who does the actual sweatwork of building. Without one or the other, construction doesn't happen. For success, writers and readers both must be willing to invest effort. Now, scholars of literary theory would say this is a variation on the theme of reader response criticism. Represented by pioneering figures such as Louise Rosenblatt and Stanley Fish, among others, but it's worth emphasizing here that Bujold's essay wasn't published in a scholarly journal for academics. It was published in a science fiction fanzine, Lands Lantern. It was aimed not at literary theorists and their fellow scholars, but at genre readers like you and me. Reader response criticism approaches a text by exploring and analyzing the various reactions it evokes in different readers. In her essay, "Here's Looking at You, Kid," she notes that examining fan fiction sheds new light on doing this. Quote, "What I really find fascinating in fanfic is that it's a natural reader response laboratory." End quote. What does she mean by this? By noting what missing scenes fan fiction writers choose to add, or which backstories they choose to flesh out, or which plot discrepancies or oversights they choose to correct, not to mention the styles that the fan fiction authors choose to express themselves through, and the ways they harness pre-existing story elements to focus on their own interior concerns, one can, she says. Quote, see inside readers' heads that otherwise inaccessible stage where all this art takes place. Put it another way, fan fiction makes manifest or acts out the otherwise private and thus opaque process that audience members go through as they consume and digest a particular work of fiction. She also talks about this theory in her 1999 convention address, given as the guest of honor speech at Mile High Con and at Swan Con, when worldviews collide. And she argues that the writers' and readers' worldviews touch every time a book is read, and four outcomes are possible when these worldviews touch the authors and the readers: one, they might match; two, they might collide. Just boom, head on. Three, they might miss each other completely, or four, the reader's worldview might expand with new information or insights, so that he or she leaves the work changed. So then, the little story petri dishes, as she calls them, provided by fan fiction, give useful windows into the results of such outcomes. 
Or, in other words, a work of fan fiction might illustrate the comfort and pleasure that comes from matching worldviews, or the fury and frustration of colliding worldviews, or the growth and satisfaction of an expanded worldview. Or it might represent active misreading, the altering or editing of a text by which the consumer reconciles worldviews that completely miss each other, reworking the author's message until it makes more sense. Again, fanfiction takes audience members' reactions out of their inaccessible and mysterious home inside readers' heads and puts them on the page or, you know, monitor or screen, where authors may contemplate and learn from them. So how does all of this affect the style of Bujolt's writing? The goal of the author, she suggests, is to attract active readers— in other words, to attract these unsung collaborators who are willing to meet the text halfway and do their part to make it come alive. So she says there are two ways to judge style in this context. First, and unsurprisingly, the style of a work should fit its content. Uh, she gives examples of unusual styles working to good effect due to unique subject matter. One example she gives is Roger Zelazny's first-person present tense delivery of 24 views of Mount Fuji. But her own style remains very traditional, almost transparent. And that's something I've noticed over years of studying and being fascinated by her work, that it, it disappears. The, her style disappears as you start reading her. If you're trying to pay attention to her sentence structure and her diction and such, it's just almost impossible to do because the story just grabs you in such a way that you forget questions of intentional style. The second yardstick by which she proposes to judge a writer's style is when she admits that she hasn't really heard suggested before. Does the style act to exclude readers? She says that writing might exclude readers in a couple of ways. First, it might be crude, and therefore it might turn away sensitive and active readers. And the other is that an author's style might be hyper-stylistic, self-absorbed. If it is, she says, this betrays a writer's elitist assumptions about who makes up an audience that matters, and it alienates many worthy readers. While appreciating the poetry of precise wordcraft, she tries to make her style as invisible as possible, so the words themselves don't get in the way of the story, the characters, the images, and the ideas. In this sense, she tries to craft inclusive, not exclusive, fiction. I would also say that her ability to bend and blend genres also helps her write works that please the greatest number of readers while excluding the fewest. This goal, like her theory of the unsung collaborator itself, comes in part from her study of fan fiction and the example set by fan fiction writers as the kind of active readers and invisible partners that she wants. So the big takeaway here, by terming fan fiction a natural reader response laboratory, she implies that fan fiction is more than just an opportunity for fledgling writers to practice and hone their skills and get an apprenticeship. It is, in itself, a valid response for consumers of texts as they work through the repercussions of meeting the author's worldview with their own. And this also provides a useful object of study for the professional writer. It's, as she says, not just food for thought about my craft, but a banquet. Good stuff. And with that, 
I will conclude my comments on Lois McMaster Bujold and fan fiction. Just FYI, in case you're interested, my segment here and the one preceding it came from a project of mine, an essay called From Both Sides Now, Bujold and the Fan Fiction Phenomenon, which was published in the collection Lois McMaster Bujold, Essays on a Modern Master of Science Fiction and Fantasy, edited by Janet B. Croft and published by McFarland in 2013. I have enjoyed so much talking to you about Lois McMaster Bujold, and I look forward to talking to you about something completely different next time. I look forward to joining you soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you so much. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. It was Ian oodles ago that kind of put me on to Louis Macasta Bujold, and somewhere, somewhere back as well, I must have been the sofa cons. Amy actually interviewed her as well for that. That was uh, pretty cool as well. That was a while ago as well. Oh, talking about sofa cons, yes. <laughs> Because <laughs> now that Jim's, because I was kind of putting that thing on the back burner. If you remember last week, Jim says, well, I'll go on and I'll do it. So <laughs> that's, that's going to happen as well. So we're, with this show, if you remember there, if I can remember, it's 484 and we're marching to this 500. So mm, lots of things to celebrate. 500 shows. Man, old boy. Old, old boy there, got grey hair now. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books.
Some rocket ships, I need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.